I'll try to bring you up to speed real quick. We looked at Genesis chapter 2 and, and really asking a question, what is marriage for? We live in a time where a lot of people are asking that question. And we probably even have middle school students or high school students or young adults in the room that are going, you know, I don't know that I ever want to get married. Or I don't, you know, like what, I, I see marriages around me and sometimes the examples that young people have aren't the exact aren't exactly the best examples. Some of you are, are married and you say, I never really had good models of marriage. And, and we asked a question, what is marriage for? In Genesis chapter two, we saw that marriage is for friendship. Marriage is for gardening, which means a mission or a purpose beyond the marriage itself. Marriage is for sex and marriage is for family. And these are all compelling reasons. But here's the problem, we don't live in Eden anymore, right? Like Genesis chapter 2 is beautiful. I love Genesis chapter 2. It, it literally ends with, with a, you know, the end of chapter 2 is this verse that the man and woman were naked and they felt no shame. And as a middle school student, I would always snicker at that. But now as a man in the, my middle age, you know, middle 40s, like I go, I get that that's not just that they were physically naked. Like they had an intimacy, no secrets, no shame, no insecurities, perfect intimacy, perfect friendship. Like, imagine how incredible that was. Like, that's one of the best ways to say they, they lived happily ever after, right? I mean, that, I mean, what if the Bible wasn't a book and it was a pamphlet? What if it was just Genesis 1 and 2? Can you imagine how incredible that would be? But that's not the case. There is a Genesis chapter 3. And Genesis chapter 3 begins with two words, the serpent. See, the main characters had been God and Adam and Eve, but now there's the introduction of the serpent, the accuser, the tempter, the enemy of their soul, the one who sows seeds of darkness and doubts and frustration. And the serpent enters the story, and he begins to cast doubt upon the character of God. Can you really trust God? Can, can you really trust that he has your best interest at heart? Does he really love you? I, I think that God's actually holding out on you. I, don't, I think that, that he, he knows things that you don't know, and, and he wants to keep you, you know, stuck. And so, but, but I've got an opportunity for you, Eve. And he begins to focus her attention on the one tree. Remember, God said, you can eat. In fact, you may eat of any tree in this garden. And this wasn't a little garden. This wasn't someone's backyard. This was a garden the size of a state. You can eat of any tree in this entire garden. You can walk as far as you can walk. And I imagine those trees were incredible and the fruit of those trees was incredible. But there's this one tree that you may not eat of. And the enemy, the accuser, the tempter begins to focus Eve's attention upon the fruit of that tree. In Genesis chapter three, it says in verse 6, the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom that it would give her, so she took some of the fruit and ate it. And then she gave some to her husband. And this is a really critical phrase because sometimes male chauvinists like to say, well, it's all Eve's fault. Here's the deal. Scripture very clearly says she gave some to her husband who was with her. Didn't stop her. Didn't say, oh, no, don't believe him. He's with her. And he ate it, too. And at that moment, their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. And so they did what humans do when we sin. We try to fix the situation, and our solutions aren't always the brightest solutions. They sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. That had to be comfortable. Seriously? 
In fact, we did this uh, probably a couple of years ago, showed you fig leaves like in the Middle East have prickly things around the ed- edges of them. These aren't like smooth leaves. Like these guys aren't the smartest crayons in the box, sharpest. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. It had been their tradition that they would walk with God. They would talk with God. They enjoyed the presence of God. They enjoyed his manifest glory all the time. They were used to it. It was, it was commonplace. And the Lord God is walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And it's not because God has lost his humans. He knows exactly where they are. He's asking the question for their benefit to see if they will respond to see what's going on in their lives. Where are you? And Adam replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? And the man replied, this is just classic, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. And this perfect marriage splinters apart because of self-centeredness and rebellion against God and sin. And the first place that sin wreaks havoc is in the marriage. The first place that sin wreaks havoc is in the marriage. And, and Adam's response to God, doesn't this sound like a six-year-old? It's not my fault. In fact, if you look at it, he's not only casting blame on Eve, he's, plas- he's casting blame on God himself. The woman you gave me. Implying, God, this is actually your fault. We're so sophisticated thousands of years later that, that we would never act in that way. And the truth of the matter is today we are still the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. And we are born with the same exact bent and the same propensity towards sin. But the good news is that Jesus has come to fix it. All of it from top to bottom. And he's fixing it from a macro level, but he's fixing it from a micro level, meaning that how is he fixing it? He's starting with you and with me. And I love 2 Corinthians 5, 17, and we use this verse so much at Journey Church because I think it's so important for us to get it in our minds that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation, a new person. God is showing you a new way to be human. The old is gone and the new has come, that that, that things are brand new. They don't have to be the way that they were because of Genesis chapter 3. We can go back to Genesis chapter 2. And oh, by the way, spoiler alert, we will one day go back to Genesis 2. The end of the book brings us all the way back to the beginning of the book. Jesus is in the process of recreating the entire cosmos, and he's starting with us. So what in the world does this have to do with marriage? Well, we talked about last week that marriage is for friendship and it's for gardening, and it's for sex, and it's for family, but because of sin, a fifth reason is introduced to the story, that marriage is now also for recreation. Marriage is for recreation. We're going to spend the rest of our time talking about that this morning. The marriage is the number one context for you and I to become more like Jesus. It's the number one context. It doesn't mean that it's going to happen automatically, by the way. For some of us, marriage becomes a context for us becoming more and more bitter. But there is an opportunity that marriage can be, if we choose to make it, 
the opportunity for us to become more like Jesus. See, Carrie, my wife, brings out the best in me. She has an uncanny ability to see what God has put in me and to call that into existence in my life. But living in close proximity with my wife also exposes some negative stuff in me. Paul calls this the flesh. Paul writing to followers of Jesus, people who had asked Jesus to come into their life, they had asked Jesus to forgive them of their sins and to be the master and leader of their life, meaning, and Paul spells this out, that they are now adopted into God's family, that legally in the eyes of God, that they are justified, that God sees them as if they've never sinned and and they receive the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is in them and with them, and yet there is still this flesh, this sin nature that resides inside of us and that we will live the rest of our lives in a journey of sanctification, of partnering with the Holy Spirit and and asking Christ to, to chip away at that stuff and to get rid of that stuff. And so what happens when I get married is that flesh stuff starts becoming all the more apparent. It, w- it was always there, but it becomes more apparent. I, I can go and I can live as a hermit in a cabin in the woods all by myself for the rest of my life, and it will be there. It will reside inside of me, but it doesn't readily become apparent until I begin to live with somebody and do life with somebody. And all of a sudden, it's obvious, and these things that were blind spots that I would never see become apparent. Marriage is a way of bringing it out of us. When I got married, I thought I was a pretty fantastic guy. Turns out I'm not. Turns out I'm super selfish and I'm crazy critical. And marriage exposes that nasty, ungodly part of me. Gary Ricucci says this. He says, one of the, I love this. I hope this is in your notes. He says, one of the best wedding gifts God gave you was a full-length mirror called your spouse. Had there been a card attached, it would have said, here's to helping you discover what you're really like. That's truth. All the singles in this room, you just need to know that that's truth, right? See, I I have this, I'm going to use this mug as an illustration for my life. And I I get married, and and you know, during the dating time, we put our best foot forward, and you know, I, I, I had never bought cologne before, but when I started dating Carrie, like I buy cologne and I try to smell my best and I try to, I'm on my best behavior and, you know, do all the things that you should do and, and I'm, I'm generous, where really I'm not a very generous guy, and, but I'm generous and, 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 you know, all this. And, and then we get married and there comes a point of time in your marriage where you let your defenses down. And I know there's people out there who lie and say that they never pass gas in front of their spouse, but they're lying. You ever run across someone? I've never passed gas. And I'm like, in 40 years of marriage, I've never passed gas in front of my partner. I'm like, BS. Okay? No way. You get married and you let down your defenses. You kind of, at some point or another, you start being who you are, right? And you get in an argument. You get in a fight. And usually they're over the stupidest things, aren't they? And in the argument, you say things that you wouldn't have said before when you were dating, but now it's just, this is who I am, and you married me, so for better or for worse, right? And so here we go, and and you say something, and and you get angry, and you get heated, and and you bump up against some things. And my response is, look what you did. You make me so angry. When the truth of the matter is, where was all of that? It was in me. 
and it was in me whether I'm with Carrie or not. It's not she who made this happen. It's inside of me. She has a way of bringing it out and making it obvious. But isn't it funny that we have that Adam syndrome? The woman that you gave me gave me the fruit. Somehow it's her fault when really it's inherent inside of me. Hi, my name is Ken, and I'm a sinner. I'm thankful for the grace of Jesus. He's redeemed me, but I'm still working on this flesh stuff inside of me. And marriage, marriage has a way. Gary Thomas wrote a book called Sacred Marriage, and I'm especially interested in the subtitle. The subtitle is, What If God Designed Marriage to Make Us Holy More Than to Make Us Happy? I'll say that again. That's powerful. Just the subtitle of the book is worth it. What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? In the book, he makes this statement. He says, quote, if you want to become more like Jesus, I can't imagine any better thing to do than to get married. Being married forces you to face some character issues you'd never have to face otherwise. So, so I showed you this mug representing my life, and this is actually a mug that a couple years ago I had the privilege of taking a pottery class, and so, so I actually made this mug. Isn't that impressive? It's the only, well, I made one other thing. Yeah, so there you go. Yeah, I'm pretty proud of this mug. Spent a lot of money on those lessons for this mug. And one of the things that I learned in pottery class, so you, you go in and they give you this great big lump of clay. How many of you have done pottery before? Some of you guys have done this. So you get this lump of clay and you... And, Doug, I should have had you bring your pottery wheel. We'll do that one of these Sundays. That would be fun. And you, you, you have this lump of clay, and you, you know, it's all, you put pouring water on it constantly, and, it's, and then you start spinning it, right? And, and so what, what re- is required with pottery is both internal pressure. If you're making a vessel, you're making like a cup, or you're making a vase or something, it requires both internal pressure and external pressure. In fact, if you're not pushing on the inside and on the outside at the same time, it will fall over. And this is true in our lives. Like, to become more like Jesus, it requires both internal pressure and external pressure. In fact, in my notes, I I put it this way, if I can find it quick enough. God, the master artist, uses marriage to create something beautiful that we would not have experienced without that external and internal pressure. So God is using marriage to bring about recreation in our lives. But again, this is an opportunity for us. It doesn't happen automatically. We make a choice of whether we are going to lean in and to allow marriage to make us holy or if we're going to allow marriage to make us bitter. So I've referenced several times in this series a book by John Mark Comer. And in his book, Loveology, he talks about three mistakes that we make when it comes to this. And I'm going to spend the rest of our time just unpacking this. These are three mistakes, and if we make these mistakes, we'll probably lean more toward marriage making us bitter than we will toward marriage making us holy. Here's the first mistake. We go into it for the wrong reasons. We go into marriage for the wrong reasons. I've been teaching that marriage is for friendship, and marriage is for gardening, and marriage is for sex, and marriage is for family, and now in the light of sin, marriage is for recreation, but that's not why most of us go into marriage. Most of us go into marriage, singles in this room, you'd say, the reason why I want to get married, I'm going into marriage because I want to be happy. (laughs) That response right there tells you everything you need to know, right? 
I, I want to be married because I want to be happy. And I'll tell you, at first that sounds extremely romantic, but that mindset is a marriage killer in disguise. Happiness is not a reason for marriage. Now listen very carefully. Hopefully happiness is a byproduct of marriage. Okay? And it should be. It should be a fruit of a godly marriage. But don't go into marriage saying, I want to be married so that I can be happy. If you're not happy going into marriage, you're probably not going to be happy on the other side of marriage. Usually, usually who I am as I go into marriage is who I am on the other side of marriage. I cringe when I'm at a wedding, and these days, it's be, over the last 20 years, you know, I've been a pastor now for like 23 years or so, and, and so it's interesting to see the evolution of marriage. I think Pinterest has like killed weddings. I'm speaking specifically of weddings. And uh, so I get to be the officiant at a whole lot of weddings, and, and it's interesting because now a lot of couples will write their vows, which I, I always think is funny. <laughs> I'll just let you in on a window. When you're doing marriage counseling, and we'll talk about, okay, do you want to do the traditional vows, or do you want to write your vows? And I'll tell you predominantly, it's the women who go, oh, we're, we're going to write our vows, and I can see it in the guy's face. Usually, I'm not trying to be gender biased, but, but usually you can see it in the guy's face where it's like a, oh, crap. I got to write this myself. Afterward, I'll say, Google has a lot of help for you, okay? You, you can do this. So, you know, they'll write out their own vows, and, and uh, hopefully they'll remember them at the marriage ceremony. I had a wedding where uh, we go to do the vows, and the guy had forgotten his vows, like, back in the room that had, like, their, you know, tuxedo bags and all that, and we had to stop the wedding. Is that anybody in here? I can't remember whose wedding it was. It was somebody. And so, so anyhow, they write these vows, and, and here's the thing that I cringe at is in the middle of them, you know, reading these vows that they've written. I've never read them. I never, I'm not nosy Nancy, you know. I don't want to see what they put in. But, but often, I mean, this happens more times than not anymore, is in the middle of them re- reading these vows that they've written to each other, they, they will make a statement like this, I promise to make you happy. I want to, I mean, I'm usually like I've got the best seat in the house, and I usually want to go, no, don't say that. You can't make that, pr- I promise to make you happy. You can't make that promise. I don't care how romantic you are, how good looking you are, how successful you are. You can't keep that promise because here's the reason, you're not God. And as a A spouse is not a substitute for God. Interestingly enough, if you come full circle, so many times when I'm sitting and talking to someone who's talking about their reasons for divorce, I will hear this line, Pastor, I deserve to be happy. I'm leaving my wife, I'm leaving my husband, because I deserve to be happy. And I always say, show me that verse in the Bible. Show, show me that, where, where it says that you deserve to be happy. But if we start the marriage, say I'm going into marriage so that I can be happy, and if we're making promises, I promise to make you happy, somewhere it lodges inside of me that if I reach a point in my marriage, two years into my marriage, seven years into my marriage, and I wake up one day and I don't feel very happy, maybe we shouldn't be doing this thing anymore. Maybe it's time to turn off the lights. If you put your faith in your spouse to make you happy, it's only a matter of time before they let you down 
Or can we say it this way? It's only a matter of time before you let them down. And so I plead, singles in this room, and probably half the room are singles. I plead with you, middle school students, high school students, man, change your mindset. Do not walk down an aisle thinking that this is what's going to make me supremely happy. Now, if this sounds bleak, this is a timeout in the sermon to let you know that marriage is fantastic. Okay? I'm not saying that you won't be happy in marriage. I hope that you will find yourself happy in marriage. Full disclosure, I am extremely happy in my marriage. All right? My best memories in life have Carrie in them. If I was to edit Carrie out of my story, it would be flat and shallow. But she's not the source of my life. Carrie is stunning and amazing and beautiful, but she's not Jesus. And she wasn't meant to be Jesus. No matter how great your spouse is, they will never be good enough. No matter how good they look right now, or what they do, or what kind of money they bring in, they are not God. So let marriage be for marriage, and let God be God. Let marriage be for friendship, and gardening, and sex, and family, and recreation. But let God be the well for your soul. Let God be the source of your life, the one who completes you, the one who brings you peace and happiness. Your spouse wasn't meant to bring those things, and when you depend upon them for that, you're, you're, putting, you're putting too much pressure on them. When Adam was alone, I don't think God thought to himself, you know what, that guy needs to satisfy his soul. He, he needs someone who can stroke his ego. He needs someone who can fulfill his narcissism. Eden gets work. Yeah, right. That's not what God said. He said, I will make an easer for him, a helper, one who is like God himself. So, one of the mistakes we make that causes bitterness instead of, instead of that causes us to become holy in our marriage is that we go into it for the wrong reasons. Secondly, we ask the wrong questions. I'm going to fly through these next two. We ask the wrong questions. The wrong questions are, like we've been saying, am I happy? Does he make me happy? Does she make me happy? Do I feel the way that I did when we first got together and everything was electric? Or have we lost that love and feeling? Is he all that I want? Is she all that I want? Does he look the way that I want him to look? Does she look the way that I want her to look? These are the wrong questions. So you're saying, well, what are the right questions? The right questions are, are we best friends? Do we talk? Do we take time to just be together? Do we enjoy each other's company? Do we have a shared, grander purpose together? Or is our relationship just about us, our house, getting more stuff? Are we lovers? If you're married, and only if you're married, do we bond and rebond frequently through sex? Are we family? Are we raising our children to love God with all their heart, souls, mind, and strength? Are we allowing Jesus to use our marriage to make us more like him? These are some of the right questions. By the way, I think all those questions are in your notes if you're following along. You ask the wrong questions, and it will lead you to bitterness. You ask the right questions, and there's a chance that it will move you closer and closer to holiness. Here's the third mistake that we make. We rate the wrong person. We rate the wrong person. Some of you in this sermon have been thinking, man, I wish my spouse was here. 
Or you're thinking, I don't think she's really paying attention this morning. I wish, I don't think she heard that, that one line that I got to make sure that she, maybe we can listen to this later on. If you're thinking that, you've completely missed the point. Stop rating your spouse on all these points and start rating yourself. You shouldn't be asking, is she a good friend to me? You should be asking, am I a good friend to her? You shouldn't be asking, is she a good partner? The question is, am I a good partner? It's not, do I enjoy sex with her, but does she enjoy sex with me? Is it pleasurable, fun, and life-giving? Not, is she a good mom? The question should be, am I a good dad? Am I a good husband? Not, is she making me more like Jesus, but am I moving closer to Jesus? Am I gently nudging her in the same direction? See, when we, when we are always rating our spouse instead of rating ourself, I guarantee you that bitterness will set in. But when instead I force myself, hey, how am I doing in this area? I'm starting to complain. I'm starting to, I'm starting to go down this path. How am I doing? What kind of person am I in this marriage? Our sin, which I mentioned earlier, is our rejection of God's ways. Our self-centeredness has separated us from God. And has created separation in our human relationships as well. But God wants to restore you. He wants you to experience recreation. And so he sent Jesus. And Jesus is the Son of God come to earth to become one of us. To show us a new way of being human but ultimately to lay down his life on the cross, to take upon himself all of our sin, to take upon himself the punishment that we deserve. And listen, until we accept his forgiveness and receive his grace, and even until we recognize that we need forgiveness, we won't have the health that we need to have to be in a relationship with another person. See, so so many people, the issue isn't, So many people, especially in the church world, think to themselves, I don't have a problem. I'm a good person. I've lived a good life. I've had people who have said, Ken, I'm not a sinner. And I said, can we call your spouse into the room? All of us, all of us have issues with flesh. All of us battle with that sin nature. All of us, if we're honest, would say, God, I need help. I'm broken, I'm helpless, I'm powerless. In and of myself, I am nothing and I have nothing. God, I need you. You don't come to that point, it's going to be hard for marriage to make you holy. And so we go, God, I, I don't have what it takes but I know that you do. I know that you have all power. I know that through Jesus and through his death and through his resurrection that I can experience forgiveness, I can experience grace. God, I am 100% dependent upon you. Would you come into my life? Would you forgive me of my sins? Would you be the master and leader of my life? I wanna live for you with your empowerment and your strength. And then here's the cool thing. As I lean into him, and it doesn't happen for many of us, it's, it's not an automatic thing. It's not like everything changes in an instant. For many of us, it's gradual. It's a journey. 
But God will begin to reshape you. He will begin to recreate you. You will begin to think more and more like he wants you to think. You'll begin to respond to others more and more the way that he wants you to respond to others. If you will lean into him, this doesn't happen to everybody. There's a lot of Christians who stay stuck and never move on and never become the people that God wants them to be. They're just as mean today as they were 30 years ago when they prayed a prayer of asking Jesus to come into their heart. We've got got to lean in and participate like we talked about in the beginning of this year. God will make us holy, but we have a... We have a role in this. we got to be active participants in this. But I'm telling you, if you will be committed to that, you can't control your spouse. You really can't. You can try, and honestly, the more that you try to control your spouse, I'll just be completely honest, the more disastrous things usually get. So I can't, I can't control my spouse, so who can I control? I can be the best me that I can be. I can can serve my spouse the way that Jesus has served me. I can try to walk in forgiveness. Jesus has forgiven me so I can walk in forgiveness. I can do everything I can. And then their decisions are their decisions. But I can walk with the confidence of knowing I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And so when things are shaken... And they will be shaken. In any marriage, we sang the song. When things are shaken, I can have the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. And I can trust in him and say, Jesus, you've got to change this. Change me. And would you insert yourself into this situation and do what needs to be done in my spouse? But I'm going to focus on me right now making sure that I'm who I need to be. Does that make sense? So here's the thing. It always starts with your relationship with Jesus. Have you asked Jesus to come into your life? Have you asked him to be the center of your life? I'm not just talking about that Jesus is this small compartment in a closet in a room off to the side in your life, but know that Jesus becomes the guest of honor in your life. Jesus is first and foremost, that your life is centered upon him, that he is the foundation of your life. Is that Jesus? Is Jesus that in your life? So first things first, I'm gonna ask you all over this room to bow your heads and close your eyes and let's just be, let's just be real about this. Regardless of how much you go to church or how good of a person you've been, or maybe you're a member of a church, maybe you've been baptized. I don't know. Let me just ask you, honestly, as you sit right now, is Jesus actively the leader of your life? And if he's not, this is a great opportunity this morning. Maybe for the first time, or maybe as a reaffirmation. This is a great opportunity this morning just to say, Jesus, come, lead my life. I receive your grace. I receive your forgiveness. If that's you, would you just raise your hand if you need Jesus to come into your life today? For the first time or maybe even as a reaffirmation, yeah. Several of you. Anybody else? Yeah. I counted at least six hands. Anybody else that didn't raise their hand already that wants to join in this? Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah, guys, that's not something to be ashamed of. That's something to celebrate. That's something to celebrate. So if you, in fact, all over this room, whether you raised your hand or not, would you just pray this with me? And this, this isn't a formula prayer where, you know, if you say these words just right, it's like this magical formula. Or No, it's meaning this in your heart. 
I'm just trying to prompt you to give you the words to pray because so many times we don't know what to pray. So, so let's pray this together, everyone, whether, whether you raised your hand or not. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus. I believe that Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected so that I can be forgiven. So I ask for your forgiveness. Come into my life. Lead me. Empower me to be who you've made me to be. I need you. I depend upon you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, that's awesome. That's the starting point. That's the starting point, but it's a starting point. Now you need, to, you, need to, you need to commit to growing in Christ. And there's so many ways that we have available for you. I'd love for you, if you raise your hand, if you had a connection card earlier, check that box in the beginning where it says my next steps of I'm starting a relationship with Jesus or I'm reaffirming a relationship with Jesus. And then when you, when you leave this morning, there's some good looking people out there with white buckets. You just put your card in that bucket. But listen, that's the starting point. The reason why we ask you to fill out that card is we want to come alongside you and help and encourage you in this journey of following Jesus. This is a journey that we're calling you to. It's a journey that Jesus called. Jesus never said to people, hey, pray a prayer and you're cool. No, he would say, come and follow me. Come, be my disciple, follow me, learn from me. And this is a journey that we're committing to, is not to a church. We're committing, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to follow you. I want my marriage to be the better for it. Now I want to pray for the marriages in this room. Next week we're going to talk about a different subject. And so if you've been like, man, he's been talking about a marriage a lot. I don't know if I'm coming back next week. We're, we're done talking about it. But, but I do want to pray, and I know a lot of you in this room, probably half of this room are, are single individuals. And whether it's because you're, you're a widow or a widower or, or divorce or maybe you've just never been married or whatever it would be. And I want you to know we love you. We bless you. You're not second class. Jesus was single. He wasn't second class. The Apostle Paul was single. He wasn't second class, the greatest evangelist who ever walked this earth. You're in some good company. So I want you to know we love you, but I just want to take them. We don't do this very often, so I hope no one's offended by this, but I want to pray for all of our married couples this morning. And particularly if you're near each other, maybe you've got maybe someone serving in the other end, and maybe this would be a little weird for you, but if you're married, um, and again, I... I really hesitate all week in doing this because I don't want this to feel like there's two classes of people in this room. But we do want to bless our married people. If, if you're married, would you stand to your feet? Listen, there is a spiritual war going on. And the enemy knows that if he can take out marriages, for the most part, he can hit, if he can take out a marriage, it's like shrapnel. It just goes all over the place. It hits children. It hits friends, it divides whole, whole relationships outside of the marriage. And so I want you to know there is a target on your back. And I don't say that in a paranoid, you know, like freak out type of thing. I want you to know there's a target on your back. And we as a church are praying for you. We have a gathering every Wednesday at 11. And very often we pray for the marriages in our church. As, as pastors, that's one of the things I'm praying for constantly. I want you to know we're praying for you. But listen, make sure that that you're in the game. If you need help, 
Don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't ask for help when it's over, Rover. So many people come to me when it's obvious we're done no matter what you say. Ken, you got a half an hour to fix our marriage. If you don't fix our marriage, we're done. Man, just like we get our oil changed in our cars, right? Sometimes we go a little longer than we should. But, but here's the thing. Every marriage needs a tune-up. Look for opportunities. Find ways to keep your marriage alive. Go to conferences. Read books. If you need counseling, Counseling isn't a bad word. Go to counseling and get an oil change and make sure that your your marriage is firing in all cylinders. We love you. We want your marriages to to be blessed and to prosper. So I want to pray a prayer over our our marriages this morning. And uh, if everyone in this room would just join me. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for everybody in this room. In fact, I just want to say I bless our singles in this room. I thank you for them. They, I thank you for covering and protection and provision for every single person in this room. God, would you be the closest friend to them? God, for our married couples, husbands and wives, God, we pray in the name of Jesus for spiritual protection over them. God, we pray that there would be a faithfulness in our marriages. We pray that sexually we would be faithful one to another. God, we pray that there would be a commitment, that there would be a service, a mutual submission one to another, that husbands would love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. God, that we would not be afraid to stoop and bend and serve in our marriages. And God, where there is bitterness and unforgiveness, God, I pray that you would melt our hearts. that we would forgive one another just as you forgave us. Father, I pray that there would be a commitment to friendship. There would be a commitment to mission and purpose beyond ourselves. That there would be a commitment to sex. That there would be a commitment to family. There would be a commitment to recreation. That I'm going to see my spouse as a gift to make me holy. That my spouse's opinions are valuable to me because they represent maybe blind spots that I don't see. And so instead of despising their opinions, I'm going to receive their opinions as gifts. Father, I pray for protection and provision over every marriage that you would grow and prosper our marriages. And that happiness would be a byproduct, a fruit peace would be a part of every marriage in this room. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask everybody to stand. We love you. Pray that this week you would realize that in Christ you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. That you would look at the struggles of life as opportunities to make you holy and to make you more like Jesus. We love you. Have a great day. Enjoy this beautiful weather. Don't get blown away by the wind. See you later.